I think we're in this interesting time. And this is fueled by the world culture. It's fueled by social media. It's fueled by economic environment where you truly have to enrage people in order to build a successful brand. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today's sponsor is a company called Relay Human Cloud, which provides staff hosting and services that simplify the process of adding remote overseas workers while removing potential risks. At Fort Capital, we've relied on Relay Human Cloud to help us scale our business. And if you stick around to the end of this episode, you'll learn about an exclusive discount offer specifically for fans of the Fort Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between 15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Billy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. Excited to be here. You got me uh, got me going early, so hopefully you can have some fun, add some value today. Yeah, we'll do it. Um, most people, I think, listening kind of understand uh, most of the story, so I don't want to rehash everything. I kind of want to start, though, with what I thought was a good idea to begin with, which was the Fire app. And so okay. can you just start with how that idea came to be and then how that evolved into an event being thrown? Yeah. So I had a basically a credit card membership company for a number of years. And as a way to add value back to my members or cardholders, I started booking these small concerts in New York City. And, you know, I was a kid with a couple of dollars, but just realized like how impossible it was to get in front of these music artists. And a number of the artists, when I finally booked them, and like met them at these concerts, I expressed my frustration. I'm like, why did it take you like so long to respond to me? Like, why did you guys jerk me around so much? And I found out at the end of the day, the artist was very rarely receiving the same offer that I was actually making. And it was going to this chain of middlemen who like would claim to be a manager or an agent, but in reality, like knew the cousin, who knew the brother, who knew the sister of some guy who like might've booked him once before. And I said this whole concept of building an industry off of like smoke and mirrors and gatekeepers just makes no sense because it takes people with budgets and it takes talent who wants those budgets and just does everything to separate them. So the entire concept of the Fire app was just build transparency and allow guys like me who have a couple of dollars to book an artist, not anymore, but back then, go straight to that artist to, to make that booking happen. And what happened to that idea? Did ever did anybody ever pursue it? it? Like, did you drop it? Are you are you even allowed to pursue that idea anymore? What happened to that? Because it sounded so, like a good one. I think like a reoccurring theme, and we can kind of get into this, was the festival quickly became this like massive lightning rod for distraction. Yeah. And I justified it at the time as a great way to market the fire app. But in reality, the festival became all encompassing. And then like once the festival collapsed, everything went down with it. Yeah. So did but but as we sit today, did the idea die or did anybody else pick up the idea and have done anything with it over the last five or six years? I think a couple of companies have tried, but no one's really no one's really pulled it off. So 
there's there's definitely an opportunity there. I think I have some uh, hangover effects of dealing with small artists and small shows. So I'm not sure if I'm the right guy, but I think there definitely is some legs to the concept. All right. I kind of want to jump to uh, the event, but the first question I have about the event, when you were calling, uh, if you've watched the documentary, which I don't think you have, but if you've watched it, you were able to kind of call people and get money on command. And I've, I, we raise money in real estate all day, every day. And so I'm in, I've, I, I understand what it's like to raise money from high net worth. My question is, what were you telling these people on the phone that you were able to like get millions almost on the spot? I think the biggest misconception is that I woke up, made a fake spreadsheet and got, you know, tens of millions of dollars. I'm like, wow, I certainly made a fake spreadsheet. The crime, in my opinion, is actually far worse, which is that I had people who had been backing me since I was 19 years old on a number of startups. They saw all the really small failures. They saw the small successes along the way. So it was more of me like violating that trust where when I called them and said like, hey guys, you've seen me for five years. This is much bigger. Like this is going to be our win. Like who were they to say that I was wrong because I'd built that trust. So it was years of just like eating shit, but also a moment of being a total scumbag and just like taking advantage of the trust that had been built between a number of people. When did the last dollar actually come in? Like w w between the day the event started, when was the last call and the last dollar coming in? Because I'm curious what you would tell somebody that was like, hey, it's in two days, but I need another two million or something of that nature. So I never actually like, this is crazy because I spent so much time like looking at my bank statements being like, look, at the last second, I was spending millions of dollars. Like I clearly thought this is going to work. I never actually paid attention to when that last dollar came in. Um, I'd imagine probably the day before the festival, uh, I think like had like 700K in like my Stripe account that Stripe froze like the day of or as things were going to shit and a couple other smaller banks, you know, froze a couple hundred grand here and there. But the investor money was certainly coming in up until the last day. So whether it was like the last hour or like the day before, I haven't really looked. And to be clear, the the, the crime was, uh, was uh, wire fraud, just lying to investors. Um, you you didn't get rich off of all this money. Like it, it wasn't a Ponzi scheme to make you rich. The, the the you just got sideways and kept trying to plow money into this event and it just became overwhelming and you got out of your skis. Is that fair? Yeah. So it certainly lied, you know, more than most people are able to, which is right. terrible to investors to get the money. But and I also had no financial controls. Like I had a couple personal accounts, a couple company accounts, and just like there was no difference. I think for the three months before the festival, up until the festival, I never had any of my own debit or credit cards in my pocket. I literally have to call someone on my team like, hey, can you like sell this restaurant? Or like, can you like wire this guy for me? And it was just like all a shit show. So every dollar went into the event, whether it was from a personal account or a company account. And this is like a commingled mess. But, you know, I had a couple of personal dollars that I'd earned and that all, you know, went into the festival as well. Yeah. Was there a point, and I kind of want to get to the day before the event but looking back was there ever a point where you finally were like i don't know if this is going to work or were you till till that day so in like a i don't know if it's a dream but so in it that you couldn't kind of pull yourself out of it so i think the biggest issue i had was like the immaturity to zoom out and look at the bigger picture i didn't like realize i was climbing a mountain and like a storm was going to come in and kill me and I was just so caught up in like, hey, today we like, you know, got one more like boulder that we managed to like scale, but not realizing that was like one of the million. And no matter 
what we pulled off today, it didn't matter because it just like wasn't possible to complete the goal. Um, so the festival is scheduled to be Friday morning through Sunday for two weekends. But in order to get everybody there in time, we had to start having planes arrive 24 hours before, so early Thursday morning. Uh, Wednesday night, we weren't ready. And I thought I had the genius idea of setting up temporary lights and making the team work overnight on Wednesday to get everything ready for the Thursday arrival. And the storm just like literally scripted as if in some like feature film came in Wednesday night and it just didn't light up. And we had this like home base in the festival site. And I just remember looking at my core, like 15 to 20 people who hours before were full of energy, full of vigor, like we're going to pull this off. And they were like passed out on like the kitchen table and they were slumped over in the couch and just couldn't get anybody to like move. And I'm like, wow, like, I just pushed them too far and we are totally fucked. So the day before you were kind of in it, riding the wave, this is going to happen. The storm hits and that's when the first maybe light bulb goes off. Shit. Tomorrow's going to be a shit storm. So the storm hits <laughs> and we had this like, I don't know what the correct word is, like the truck that carries a container. So it's a massive like, you know, truck. And we gave this like 18 year old intern who was like, you know, dad was an investor from New York, gave him the keys to the truck. And like he's trying to move it in the middle of the storm and he like runs over our main water line and just takes out the water for like all the bathrooms, all the showers. Like, and that was like, oh fuck, <laughs> what is going on? And everyone's like looking around, or core people are just like slumped over on the couch. And like that's when I realized, like, okay, like we need a miracle. This is just not what we thought it could happen. Okay, the day of the festival comes. Did you sleep that night or did you were you no, just so running that, on were you running on adrenaline? So that Wednesday night is when the storm came. The guests were supposed to arrive early Thursday morning. So definitely like, I remember like laying down in bed and like, okay, I'll wake up in two hours and the storm's gone. I woke up in like 30 minutes and the storm was still there. I'm like, this shit's not going away. So definitely didn't sleep Wednesday night. The guests started arriving on Thursday and I had the genius idea that the festival site was not ready yet. So let's send them to the opposite side of the island to this beach send all the booze there, send boats and jet skis and whatever it was, and just get them wasted, which is a terrible concept because they got wasted and they came back like a pitch black Thursday night and it just turned into this like madhouse shit show. So now it's Thursday night, we had around a thousand people who had already arrived. They're all running around, they're drunk, they can't see, like our lights aren't working. They're trying to like get tense and just kind of lost all control of the team at that point. And was told literally a couple hours later that three people had died, which thankfully is totally not true. No one got hurt. At that point, like hearing people physically got hurt, I felt like I ran to a wall. I'm like, all right, this is over. Get everybody out of here as fast as possible. And how did that go down? You get this report that maybe somebody had died and you finally tell the team, like, everybody get out of here. But what actually happened? Because people couldn't get out of there. So did people just, was there a point where people were starting to like, get out their pitchforks and they were starting to get upset and rally or was everybody just continuing to party hoping for a plane to come so i think it was a mix of both i just remember standing on this milk crate just like yelling at people <laughs> and not really knowing like what directions i was giving and like taking a lot of shit back in return i had like tons of like local friends who are almost like de facto security guys who are kind of standing there and like you know trying to wrestle with the guys who are trying to wrestle with me and it was pretty much a madhouse um the big issue was there was essentially one runway and we had chartered two 737 planes. And the issue was it had basically like a time to like load and then like refill the planes. So we could only fly so often. 
And we were literally maxing out these planes, maxing out the pilots, maxing out the runways. And we made the call. Someone ran to the DJ booth to turn the music off. And we literally had the radio to the pilots in the air who were bringing more guests from Miami to the festival sites and turn the planes around and come back and get everybody out of here. And it pretty much took like all day Friday to get everybody off the festival site. You've had probably time to think about this. To actually pull this event off, what would actually have have to happen? Like, let's go through like a different location. We'd have to raise 100 million instead of 20. Like, what would have to happen? Because you watch the videos of the event. It's obviously like everybody's dream. But if you had to now, from your perspective, say, this is what really would need to happen to throw this, like, what would have to happen? 18 months and $50 million. Okay. And, uh, and a really good CFO to tell me no. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the hardest part. But I think time is the biggest issue. And when I was trying to do it all in four months, all of the contractors and vendors understood that time frame was unrealistic. And they used it as a way to juice the prices up. So certainly paying far more than market value for the majority of the goods and services. And so it's like the combination of time getting overcharged and just like not having any ability to manage myself financially. Would you throw it in the same location that you did? Was it was there an infrastructure issue as well? Or would you try and go to like a major city or, or place that has a lot more infrastructure? So I think the problem was that the allure of the festival was being on this incredible remote island where it's just you with X number of really incredible people on this untouched playground where there are no rules. So as soon as you go to like a major developed city, you lose the crux of what I was selling. I think a fire festival for 500 people with 18 months lead time could be absolutely incredible. It's probably just not practical to do what I was selling on a remote island for thousands of people. If you look back, was there anything you took from that? And we're going to talk about pirate later, but like, it's obviously didn't go right, but is there anything you take from it and say there were some, I don't know, successes along the way or something that you learned from it that is, um, you know, something that you're taking with you to your next business? Yeah, learned so much and, oh, I don't know where to start, but I think just like the biggest issue was I was finding pride in pulling off what I believed to be the impossible. And I wasn't finding pride or even caring about how I got there. And from like a human level, it's totally wrong. But I think from a business level, it's wrong too. And I was pushing away a lot of the smart people. And I think attracting people who wanted that shortcut to glitz and fame and glamour, but had no interest in finding joy in that journey and path it takes for anybody to actually get there. Yeah. All right. You're going to, uh, one day you're probably going to have kids. What are you going to tell your kids? How are you going to tell your kids about this part of your life? Interesting. So like so many lessons, right? And I just like don't know if I have the maturity at this point to understand like how to repackage that to, to help raise a kid. Um, but I think there is this concept where if you go for it, but you go for it and fail, honestly, like that is part of the beauty in life. And the fact that I was so afraid to deliver bad news or to, to look imperfect to my investors or team members, like that insecurity is like really pathetic and sad and we don't have it all. And the only way to get it all in our, and basically accomplish all of our dreams is to own our flaws, get help for our flaws and just like really double down and focus on what we're good at. So 
I really want to inspire like anybody who I love or care about. Like you can go for it. And like that's the beauty of life. Like don't take that safe path. Like it's not going to be the most rewarding one. But if you go for it and you had the balls to do it, they get the balls to do it honestly. That's where I think the best relationships and the best joy in life is really found. And you like I've listened to some of your stuff and and look, I think every entrepreneur uh suffers from this or suffers or has this deal, but you've kind of grown up your whole life feeling like you had to prove something to somebody. Do you know where that came from? I have felt that my entire life is like, I always wake up feeling like I have to prove something, but I can't really trace it. Do you know where yours came from? Is this a family thing? Is this an inspiration? Like where did this happen? I don't know. And like, I get asked this by every type of professional, like almost like on a daily basis at this point. Um, I don't know. And I like to think I trying to prove to myself and, and I'm probably wrong, but I think I have this mentality where I like to set a goal that today seems impossible for me. But I think my biggest flaw is that like, once I get there, I'm like, oh, wow, it's like, this is not as great as I thought it would be. Like, what's the next one? And fire was a combination of that happening far too quickly and never getting settled at the next level. So always jumping to the next level, never having a chance to really like build my guardrails up and build the foundation to support that level. And it's like quickly jumping to the next step. And I need to learn like how to do that, like how to take stock and just how to be grateful and find pride with where I am today while still keeping the ambition to get to the next step. I love it. All right. So you get back from the festival. Um, how, when did you get off the island? If, if people started arriving Thursday, how long were you at the, at the island? Uh, I flew back late Sunday night. Okay. So got to New York like midnight Sunday night and then all hell, if it hadn't already broke loose. And that was the, that was the beginning of the end. All right. Well, let's talk about that. What happened when you land? Like what, what was all hell breaking loose? What is that from your perspective? Uh, landed midnight ish in New York, um, went back to my apartment. And I think five hours later, the doorman was knocking on my door, all sweaty saying the FBI is here to see you. And oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like a 25 year old hearing the words FBI in my apartment and like my doorman who I'd seen it all at this point, like scared shitless. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is a different level of, of seriousness. And was this driven by one of your investors that had told you if, if this goes wrong, I'm going to get you? Or was this just them watching the media knowing you had committed some type of fraud or something? So no matter how it got there, like I was going to get the same charges and the same jail sentence. Yeah. But I had an investor who called me in the midst of this like Friday, Saturday drama, basically demanding money or else that he, his exact words were, I need this dollar amount or else you're going to be in handcuffs in the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Like, first of all, I didn't have the money he was asking for. But second, like, I just couldn't fathom what he was saying was even true. And I remember calling him back at some point on Sunday, like realizing I should probably try to figure this out with him and him just being like, too late. Sorry, I tried to help you. and like, didn't really get it. So I think all it was, he was obviously super like politically connected. He just made the process go faster. But I think at the end of the day, just like once he started the process, it was out of his hands and in the hands of the justice system and the rest is history. I think of, have you ever watched Billions? Yeah. Okay. I think of that scene from Billions where they can just kind of make a call and things start, start moving. Okay. So FBI shows up at your place and what happens? They basically like, I was too dumb not to know to like say, hey, call my lawyer. So basically they're like, they, they, they show up with a bunch of search, like not search warrants, like uh, 
subpoenas essentially for like all my files. And they're like, their entire questioning was, why'd you do a fake festival? Like, where'd you hide all the money? And I'm like, oh, the festival was real. Like I tried my best. And like, I was just like being kind of like exasperated, like back to them. Mm-hmm. And, and then they left uh, and basically had X number of days to turn over all my emails. And I think it was like six weeks later, they came again this time, like with 10 of them in handcuffs and took me to jail. So it was a pretty quick turnaround. Okay. And in that six weeks, though, did you continue conducting some type of business or were you just laying low? So at this point, the world was spinning and I, I wasn't really doing anything. I was like fielding calls from investors all day long, being like, what the fuck happened? I couldn't fathom like jail is a real thing. I'm like, oh, they think that I tried to do a fake festival. They're totally wrong. I'm not going to jail. Like, I just couldn't understand like what the crime actually was. Like I knew what I did was morally wrong, but I just like, couldn't fathom it would break the law to the point where the FBI would actually care. I just didn't understand. So six weeks later, when they came with like a charge of wire fraud and took me to jail, that was like the most shocking, like, oh shit moment that ever happened. And just to kind of like paint a picture of where your head's at in all of this, did you actually subconsciously know you were lying while this was going on? Or were you in like euphoria of like, there's this thing. And if I don't pull it off, the world's going to come crashing down. And so I'm going to just do everything I can. Or were there moments where you're like, I'm doing something wrong, but I can't help it. I'm just going to keep going. So totally knew what I was doing was wrong. I had this vision though, that people came to for three reasons, like one financial success, two, to meet the crazy people that I was like bringing together and three, like for the glitz and fun of it. And I thought that the only way to deliver these three things and make people happy was to pull the event off. So I convinced myself that every lie was for the greater good of paying people back in like those three capacities, not understanding I was digging a hole that was becoming impossible to get out of. Yeah. Okay. So they, the FBI comes, they pull you out, but you go to jail, but you, that's not when you've stayed in jail. How long you, you went to prison, but then you got out on bail, right? Yeah. So I was there for one night and then. Yeah, I got arraigned the next morning, was released on bail. Um, and this is June of 2017 at this point. And then ended up being on bail for basically a year until I fucked up again, had my bail revoked. FBI came again, and this time wasn't getting out for a while. If you hadn't fucked up again, do you think you would have gone back or do you think you would have? it would have been different? My, and I, I could totally be wrong. My guess is I probably would have gotten a two-year sentence instead of a six-year sentence if I didn't fuck up again. And like, that's just me guessing. Like, no, there's no rhyme or reason to that method. So I don't want to like stamp that, but that's my, that's my gut feeling. Can you share what you did to fuck up? Yeah. I just like went to jail, got out. And my mind was so fucked. I'm like, wow, like this investor wasn't kidding. It's all about the money. And he had given me like, at this point, once again, like any rational person would realize it's like far too late. What I had done is I'm guilty. I'm going to jail regardless. But I came up with this dollar figure in my mind where like, I need to pay this guy back this amount of money or else I'm going back into this hellhole where I just went for one night that scared me shitless. So it became all about the money for me. And I got back to doing what I thought I knew how to do, which was selling access to experiences people didn't otherwise have. And as I always started off fine and manageable and quickly got over my skis and just like fucked up. And I think the reality was just because the festival failed didn't mean that I learned how to fix my behavior overnight. Like I still had the catastrophe, but I was operating in the same capacity that I was leading up to the festival. And I just truly like hadn't learned and hadn't changed at that point and was just being an asshole. 
and you've always been an entrepreneur and I'm assuming I would imagine one quality about you is you've always kind of wanted freedom. Like you, you haven't wanted to take direction from a lot of people. You kind of like doing what you want to do. And I say that to say my biggest fear on the planet, because I think, again, as an entrepreneur, I can feel a lot of that is going to prison where you can't do anything you want to do and you're totally powerless. And so you go to uh, trial or, or back to court. Did you know you were getting six years when you went in there? Or were you still kind of like naive enough to go, maybe it's not going to be that bad? I think when I sat down, I realistically thought anywhere from two and a half to eight years was kind of my gut reaction. And when I heard six, I just like couldn't fathom that length of time. I was 20, I was still 25 or no, sorry, I was 26 at this point. And I'd been living like day to day, even when we had X millions of dollars in the bank, I was finding a way to spend like X plus two. So I was never stable. I was always worrying about making payroll every two weeks about, you know, paying the 50K club bill with my 20 friends, like on Thursday nights, like it was always a fear that the credit card would go through or the wire would hit. So I couldn't fathom six years. Like to me, it's like, how can I plan that far ahead? And it was like super, super hard to digest and understand like what that period of time really meant. In a weird way, were you relieved? No, I, I think like, and that was the biggest misconception is before the sentencing, like everybody in the, in, uh, in the detention center was like, hey, like, don't worry, you're just gonna feel so relieved. As soon as you just get the answer, it's all gonna be over. Like, you're, you're gonna feel great. And this is, like, was not true. Like I heard six years, I'm like, fuck, like between 20 and 26, my life had changed so fucking much. It felt like I lived like 10 lifetimes. I can't imagine like coming out of here at 32 and like now it sounds silly that it happened and now I'm out and almost 32 or 31, but whatever, like it, it all kind of like actually happened, but I just couldn't fathom it and just like felt terrible. And I think it took me a year to a year and a half to really come to terms with that period of time. So you get told six years and you just turn around in the courtroom, look at your friends and family. Yeah. What did oh, they want for you? What did they want for you? All I remember is like hearing like the friends and family section started maybe five feet behind me. So it's actually physically close. I just remember hearing like a group gasp. And I think like no one on the friends and family side thought it would actually be that long. I think we all kind of like knew it, but didn't want to admit it. All right. So they, they put you in cuffs. They walk you out the door. What was the first day of prison like where you're facing reality? I mean, were you still in euphoria? Like what is the first day of jail like? So I'd been in the Brooklyn Detention Center, which is a pretty rough place for four months prior to sentencing. So basically I went back there and they're like, you going back here until you figure out which jail you're going to. And I was a mess. Like I have six more years of this, like can't go outside and like, you know, can't do anything. It's like seeing things that are just like scary on a regular basis and just didn't know how to, didn't know how to handle it. What would you do? Like, what did you do all day? Just sit and think? Did they give, do you have activities? Do you meet people? Like, how did those days start going by? Because for someone that had been on such a, as much momentum as you had had, it's like hitting a wall. Like, what would you do for those, like to pass that time? I think your mindset here is super smart. Like the forced time out aspect is by, by far the hardest part. Like we could all get used to sleeping on a shitty bed or like, you know, eating worse food after a certain period of time. But it's like that physical time out where you just can't act is the hardest thing. Just get your body and mind around. You, just, you work out, like you do tons of push-ups, you do burpees and like everybody becomes like a, you know, a burpee expert within like the first year of going to jail. 
And I just passed time by like, just like taking in the ridiculousness of a lot of the situation too. They were just like so many characters just doing like, you, you couldn't make up the things that were happening. So I would just like watch and just like keep a journal of the wildest moments. And there's like find a couple of guys who also thought it was ridiculous. And it's like, it was, it was like almost like a 24 seven comedy show at the end of the day. Just like all these just like wild characters and the drama they're getting into and the things they cared about was pretty funny. Did you ever feel in danger? Did they know your, who you were? Were you kind of known for what you had done or were you just uh, Billy that had shown up to prison? So TV was like the biggest thing. And so they watched like all the terrible like news and talk shows. So people were pretty familiar like with the crime. Um, I just remember what I got chance to a jail at one point, And the first thing they always ask you is like, what did you do to get here? And I guess I got too detailed by saying wire fraud. And he goes, oh, what kind of wires were you stealing? Like, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> he said, I used to steal wires too. And I'm like, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> like, not going to do that one again, right? <laughs> Copper. Kind of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't really know what kind. <laughs> I didn't want to say it was like a financial crime at that point. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. You're right. <laughs> a lot of um, wires. Yeah, a lot of wires, man. Like, um, and they would go, oh, how, many, how much did you get? I'm like, oh, 26? Like, 26 grand. Damn, man. Like high five. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was kind of funny. But um, I think the biggest misconception in jail is people group fraud into one bucket of like petty, like credit card fraud. So I think one of the most annoying things was like literally on a daily basis, someone would talk to me like, yo, man, how do I steal like $400 in a gift card? Or how can I like skim someone's credit card? And like, I truly just don't know. And no one believed that like, I didn't know how to commit like credit card fraud. So that was a little bit annoying. But it was interesting and just like totally crazy characters and just like, you know, have a hundred stories. It was just wild. So you then started a podcast because you didn't stay for very long where you were. You ended up going, what was the next evolution of prison for you? So I went from Brooklyn to, which is brutal, like violent, et cetera, to a prison that was probably the most financial heavy in the federal system in upstate New York, where it was like almost all financial crimes, which is super, super rare for federal prison. Um, got in trouble there after six months. So it didn't last very long. I had a, I had a USB device. I was trying to basically transcribe a book. So once again, like couldn't fathom that I'm in timeout and I'm not allowed to work. So I kept trying to think of ways to work to prove that I wasn't as bad as people were saying I was, that I wasn't incompetent, that I could make a positive step, whatever my motivation was, like I wanted to do and execute. So tried to do this book, got in trouble there went to solitary confinement for three months there um, and then was taken on Con Air for the first, but unfortunately not the last time to Oklahoma City. And then again on Con Air from Oklahoma City to a jail outside of Pittsburgh, uh, actually in Ohio. Um, lasted almost a year there until I decided to do a podcast on the prison payphone. And that is not a good idea. So that's why it feels it's good to be able to do a podcast right now and not get in trouble for it. But uh, I, I went to it from jail. And uh, when you say you're on Con Air, why did they keep moving you around to different prisons? I, so I kept getting in trouble. <clears throat> so okay. I guess in order to, the, the system is just not efficient. So in order to get me from New York to basically Pittsburgh, they flew me from New York to Oklahoma and then Oklahoma to Pittsburgh. So who knows why, but that's just what they did. That sounds so. like the government. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait. What would you do to get in trouble, though? You started a podcast, but like what gets you in trouble in prison? 
Okay, so first was the USB device, and that got me in trouble. Okay. And then next was the podcast. And the biggest problem with the podcast is they were so confused because it didn't break any rules. And like, so they didn't know what to do. It's like, well, you can't do a podcast, but there's nothing that says you can't do a podcast. And you use the payphone that you're allowed to use. Like, what do we do? And the fact that like it didn't break the rules just pissed them off so much. They kept me in solitary for seven months for that, which is just like absolutely wild. Seven months straight and brutal. All right. And they're like, yeah, they're, yeah, that was, that was just like awful. Okay. Why? I know why, or I don't know why I've never done it, but so they tell you solitary. What is solitary? I mean, we've seen it on TV, but to you who's been in it, what is solitary? So it's like a nine by seven, nine by eight concrete room that probably hasn't been cleaned in 40 years. <laughs> like, and that's being nice. Um, it has like a toilet with no, with no seat, uh, a sink attached to the toilet. So you're like bending over the toilet to like slurp water out of the, out of the little sink and <clears throat> two beds. You can either be in there alone or you can be in there with the cellmate. Um, it's good being alone for like up to two weeks, but then like after two weeks alone, you go crazy. And like, so the cellmate's good not to go crazy, but it's terrible. Like when they're taking a shit 18 inches from your head, you know, so it's like, there's, there's both suck and they both kind of suck in their own ways. Dude. Oh my. Okay. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important, but if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. When you say like you start going crazy, what starts to happen uh, at the two-week mark? You get very extreme thoughts. And even if your cellmate is someone who you have no interest in, they can at least sanity check you to like a certain level. But when you have no human interaction, like your highs and lows in your mind just become like grandiose. Like for the most time, you're like, I'm not getting out of here. Like I'm going to die in here. You're hearing guys screaming and crying. And like, you're just like thinking the absolute worst. And there are moments where like, oh, this is going to be a great story one day. You know, I'll be on a podcast. Like, can you believe they threw me in solitary for just doing an interview? And like, but then like you kind of extreme thought processes and no one is there to kind of keep you sane. And I think like just the physical presence of somebody else can help like at least temper or channel those thoughts a little bit, but having no one to bounce them off of just like deteriorates our like ability to understand like what's reality and what's fiction. Can you read? Can you watch TV? Is there anything you can do? All you're allowed to do is read, but the issue was you're only allowed two books a week. Nice. And it, it might sound like a lot to like a busy professional, but when you have nothing else to do 24 seven, you're, you're reading a book, a book and a half a day, even if you're not like a, you know, avid reader. So it's, it's pretty much like punishment. So you can distract yourself for a day and a half, two days max with the two books. But then after that, you're just like, you're toast. 
Would you go from being alone for two weeks, then get a celly and then go back to being alone? Or was exactly. it just like, would you just go and you could just tell the guard, hey, I want to be alone again or? Like, no, whatever they thought would basically piss you off more. So uh, I was alone for like the first, maybe like for the seven month stint, I was alone probably for the first like six weeks. Oh, wow. And then my lawyer complained. Um, so they're like, oh, McFarlane, you want a celly? Uh, we got you a celly. And the guy's name was Bags. So I'm sure Bags is listening. He's following along now. So shout out to Bags. But uh, yeah. he got to a shootout with the cops and got his colon shot out and never actually got his colon bags. So every 30 minutes, like clockwork, Bags was using the bathroom nonstop. Oh, my so, gosh. Like, he's a great guy. But like that, like that in their mind, like, oh, you need a summit? All right, well, we're, we're going to give you one. Like, I'm trying to do a push up. He's like, I got to use the bathroom, Sally. I'm like, oh, fuck. And like, kind of oh climb my. up on the bed and like hide my head. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, like uh, trying to eat lunch. Oh, I got to use it. Oh, fuck. All right. <laughs> Did not stop. And you eat in the cell. You don't, you don't work out. Like, you don't get to leave. You're in that cell 24 hours a day. So the rules bags. are you're supposed to get one hour, five days a week in a cage outside. That's like the same size cage, but you can at least like see the sky. It's like concrete walls, cage, barbed wire on top. You can at least like look up. But COVID was a great excuse that we couldn't go outside. So like maybe once every two weeks, they, I could go to a cage outside for an hour, but they basically handcuff you, you know, walk you to the cage handcuffed, unhandcuff you in a small room, small cage outside. But like literally it was like, once every two weeks. And there was like a eight or 10 week stretch where I said, COVID's too bad. No, I'm going to go outside. So, was there ever a moment where you started feeling institutionalized, where you started breaking down or were you, did you kind of tough through it? So that's kind of how I found my pride is like when I realized that the entire process is designed to destroy your ambition. And I guess like if you're a really bad person, right? If you're like a rapist or a murderer, like you don't want to give that person ambition, right? Because then like they'll get ambition and find creative ways to just do terrible things. So I understand like why that process is needed, but it's very hard, I think, to kind of keep that creative spirit alive. And I would piss off all of my cellmates in there because they're like, Billy, you just need to find a routine where you just do the same mindless things at the same time every day. That's the only way to get through this. And I kept fighting against that. And like, I think it helped a little bit now, but it made the time a little bit harder. So I, I refused to like become this mindless drone in there. And it was tough. What would have a routine look like that other people were doing that they were trying to get you to do? Like what would have, what's a day in the life of an inmate that's there forever going to look like? In solitary, it's you wake up, you work out, you take a nap at the same time every day. You work out again, you take a nap, you maybe try to write a letter. Then you spend an hour banging on the door, screaming and making music. And it's like, there's, there's not much to it. Uh, you, then you get high, I guess. Like, you know, drugs were rampant in there. Oh, really? And especially in solitary, people would find ways to get drugs in there. And most people, I think, were high a good percentage of the time. So they're all like sneaking in drugs. And like literally my contraband in solitary was trying to get real pens and paper so I can like write. So it's like, <laughs> can I pay someone to get like an actual like ballpoint pen? <laughs> like what? Like, so every, every solitary place I was in, I was trying, you know, trying to pay money for pens and they're like getting high all day. So it's kind of funny. You could have crack or you can have a ballpoint pen. Which <laughs> yeah, one do exactly. you want? And sometimes the pen is more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> can your family visit you if you're in solitary? Where I went for three months for the first place, they could come once a week behind a glass 
cage of not cage, like it's just like a glass wall. So like your hand, I'm still handcuffed. Yeah. I can like talk through a speaker to them. But for the seven month stint, they're like, fuck that. You could have no contact with the world, no phone calls, no visits. They're like, you're fucked. And they legitimately tried to send me to a terrorist facility for doing the podcast, which is just fucking asinine. And you were just going to be on somebody's podcast. Like you were just talking through the phone to be on somebody's podcast. You weren't starting one through a phone and somebody was recording you on the other end. I had a friend who was like handling my, you know, small, you know, business holdings at the time, organize yeah. it where he got, you know, a decently well-known podcast host to fly to his studio and, he was basically just like hosting the podcast in his own channel, but he hung out for like a day and a half and I would call, you know, as much as I can call until my minutes ran out and just like recorded the whole episode in like a day and a half. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's what we did. Did it ever get published? Is, it, is that episode out there somewhere? Yeah. Uh, the guy's name is Jordan Harbinger. Uh, he published it. And the scariest thing is that like the episode was so boring. I was so scared to say anything wrong over the payphones. Yeah. So it was like literally just me apologizing. And there was nothing controversial, like nothing remotely like illegal about it. And they kept kept asking, like, well, what else did you say? Like, what else is he going to say that you told him? Like, I just didn't say anything. And like, they refused <laughs> to believe I did a podcast to apologize. Like, they couldn't, they couldn't fathom, like, I was telling the truth. What's the worst thing that you saw in prison? What's something you'll never forget? Um, in Brooklyn, before sentencing, so maybe like two-ish months in, I was like still fairly new. Um, there was a kid around my age who uh, kind of looked like me that came in and everybody started joking like, Hey, Billy, your brother finally came here. Like, you know, you didn't tell us the rest of your family's like into crime too. They're all kind of like ribbing on me. Never actually talked to the guy, but you no, know, the first day there, he basically paid, you know, a big gang $1,200 for protection. So they moved him into the same cell as one of the gang members, which is in the cell next to mine. And he got raped that night. And it's basically like we're locking the doors, but just like heard through the walls it all happening. And then the next morning, he didn't want to like tell him the guy, but he couldn't stay in the same cell. So he told the cop like, hey, I need to move cells. So they moved cell, they moved his cell and we're in the same like unit still. And the word got around that he got raped. So the other gang members pressured that gang guy to do something about it. So the next morning, they opened the doors at like 6 a.m. Next morning, when the doors open, all you heard was like, help, help. And he's like bloodthirsty screams that basically the gang guy was like stabbing him, you know, oh. ran to his cell and stabbed him in the morning. So it's like he goes from paying the guy to getting raped and then stabbed by the same. It's like it's like not funny, but it's like so ridiculous all within X number of hours. And that was just like this place is real. Like this is like. This is no joke. How does that not happen to you or to anybody that goes in? Like, how did you shy away from that experience? Is there something you did or your crime wasn't like you weren't in the spotlight? Why would that not have attention been on you? So at the later jails I went to, it wasn't as bad as Brooklyn. Like Brooklyn had every security level from like, you know, El Chapo was there in like in solitary, but not in the main unit to like, you know, a guy like me who was nonviolent in like every possible way. So it had the gamut of people. Um, I think the biggest thing was that if you didn't owe anybody money and you didn't get in the way of them making money, they just didn't really care about you. Uh, like a lot of it was like gang controlled and it was drug sales. It was like contraband cell phone sales. So I think a lot of the people who were in and out of prison for their, their whole lives, they view jail as a way to like make more money as fucked up as it sounds. So if you're not getting involved or getting in the way of their business, people don't really care about you. And 
I paid my bills. And the, the reality was it was like, wasn't expensive to live, but I spent enough where I was a value add to the guys. Like I would buy food, I would buy services, whatever it was, like nothing crazy, but you know, spend a few hundred dollars a month. And that was like more than paid on time and just like never made any money in there. And that was I think enough just to, you know, slide under the radar. What did prison do for you that you'll, that, that reset your life? For, like, what did you learn? What gave you hope while you were in there? And what kind of plagued you while you were in there? Maybe we'll start there. Yeah. So I think the biggest lesson from jail is, I think two things. Like one is relationships. I think when you go through a traumatic or exciting event with someone, you just like form a special bond. And along those lines, some of the best people I met were kid deeper men now who were arrested when they were young kids and they just had no exposure to any real opportunity in the world. And at 18, their mom, cousin, brother, everybody else they knew was in a gang and selling drugs. And it's really hard to blame that person when they didn't have one, not one person in their life who had any kind of job or, you know, outside success. And like that to them was like the ultimate level of success. And you get arrested at 18 for selling drugs and now you're 30. There's a chance like you could be a really good person who just didn't know any better. So it's like intrigued by like the deep relationships I formed with a handful of the guys and two, just like how important exposure was and like also like how much of a piece of shit I was. I remember like one of the worst jails I was transferred to. There was only a couple financial guys and one guy came up to me one day. He's like, look at all these idiots. And like he was like, you know, Harvard grad who stole a shitload of money. And I look at him like, no, like we're the fucking idiots, right? Like we knew thousands of people in our lives who did everything right and didn't come here. Like these guys didn't know one person. And like we we lowered ourselves to that level. Like they're not the stupid ones like we are. So that was kind of the biggest like mind, you know, opening experience. When do you think you learned that? A year in, two years in, three? How long were you there for what? Four or five years is what you ended up serving? Uh, I ended up serving for four years. So were you arrogant the first year? Was there, or, or was there a moment that you kind of had like a, a realization of like, man, there's a lot more to life than what I thought there was? I think it took like a year and a half where I got transferred away from the financial tailored prison to more of these prisons and like ended up meeting like really good guys. And it's like as I learned their backgrounds and their stories, and like what made them tick. I don't know. Like I just felt like super grateful and super bad all at the same time. And it was like it was definitely an emotional experience. Like. Like one of my best friends, for an example, in the jail, he was 18 and robbed the Walgreens. But since it was a pharmacy, it was a federal crime. And now he was like 28 or 29 and in jail. And like, he just didn't know any better. Like the guy wouldn't hurt a fly. But no, now had eight or nine years of time in jail. This his entire like development years when he just didn't have a dollar to his name and was raised in like the worst street in like South Chicago. Like, it's hard to blame him. Sure, he should have gotten in trouble, but is that like 30 days or 60 days? Not like nine years and missing your whole 20s for not hurting anybody. Just crazy to me. Yeah, I've got a buddy here that did one of the largest crypt gang busts in, in history, and he tells a lot of stories about how these are gr like 99% of the day, these are great people. And yeah. then that 1%, they look at their uncle or their dad or their brother, and they just do that thing to get that money to to pay for yeah. their life and they get caught and then their life's over and they have, it's it's almost like destined to happen. There is no chance for these folks. Super sad. Yeah. What do you get to stay current on? Like, what did you know was going on out in the world? And then what things when you're there, you just like have no idea what people are saying or doing, not even just about you, just culture in general. I mean, you... That was kind of a weird four years. There, whoa, like, 
there's a lot that just changed in the world in that four years. We can go down the woke trail if, if that was interesting, but what, where do you stay current on and where are you totally detached from reality? So I think the two biggest shocks to me were the woke people are soft as hell right now. Yeah. And I think that all of my peers, because they work hard, they think they're entitled to being the best looking, richest, most successful person in the world just because like, that's crazy to me. Yeah. And two is only fans. Like, like, I came out of jail and I'm like, no, her, her too. Like what, like what happened to the world? Like those are the two biggest culture shocks to me. Um, everything is super delayed. And it's like, we would get like an okay magazine, like the shitty tabloid from like six years ago, like literally. So I'd be looking at like, you know, a 2013, like, okay magazine. Like, you know, sometimes you get more recent ones too, but there was no real time cohesion in anything. And You'd find that escape however you could, even if it was reading like a tabloid from, you know, many years ago that had changed time to times over again. Not in solitary, we had TV. So a lot of that was like mainstream media. And, and most of the jails are like big CNN, you know, kind of people. So I never actually watched like cable news in my entire life. So I watched like CNN and a little bit of Fox News the first time ever. And like, you know, thought it was hilarious and like couldn't comprehend that like, this is actually a thing. I just like had no exposure to it, but everything is just kind of behind socially. Um, and yeah, there's no real like cultural awareness. And I think like a lot of the people who might be like, who were like the biggest like stars in my world, like no one had never heard of before. So people are just like super far behind at times. Fill in the blanks of this sentence. Billy going into jail was blank and Billy coming out of jail was blank. And I'm not drinking beer. This is Topo Chico. No, no problem if you are. It's 9.30 uh, in the morning. <laughs> uh, Billy going into jail was unaware. And I think unaware of, most importantly, I think unaware of like the real ramifications of my actions and also unaware of like where it actually went wrong. And like if I met you today and lied to you today for an investment and like we both want to gain from it, like, yes, I'm a terrible person. I should go to jail. But if I had known you for five years and we've gone through a lot of shit together and then I call you and say, Hey, Chris, you know, I need a hundred grand tomorrow. And I promise you, you're going to make a ton of money on this. Like I'm 10 times worse of a human being for that. So I think it was like really understanding where that moral, you know, boundary and compass like went wrong for me. So I think unaware across the board, uh, before I was going in, um, coming out, uh, I think scared is probably like what I am now knowing that. And, and I'm like, the biggest anti-conspiracy theorist, but like knowing there is someone out there who could snap their fingers and put me in a box for seven months, like that's fucking frightening. How do you face that fear just by doing the right thing? Or do you think like you could keep doing the right thing and they're still not done with you? Or is it that kind of fear? That's my fear. I think it's definitely overblown at times, but I'm also scared of being powerless. And I kind of saw like when I went to solitary that second time and like, you know, didn't have a million dollars to pay like the best attorney who probably could have gotten me out of solitary at that point, you know, in a week, because it was ridiculous, like, didn't have the resources to to really fight back at that point in time. So and like, a as a result, hurt a lot of like friends and family who just like didn't also realize like what they could have maybe done to help me. So I think just scared of being powerless, and scared that by being powerless, I can say something tomorrow that will piss somebody off. And they can be like, all right, send it back for three years as good as we can. They do still have a one string attached. You you owe twenty seven million dollars of restitution, something like that. Yes, yes. How does that get paid back? 
Yeah. So a portion of all of my income uh, goes back to restitution. I'm actually going to go right after this call to the courthouse and drop off a couple of checks. No so, kidding. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, so literally I have to go. It's an antiquated system. I have to go to the post office and take my debit card and buy cashier's checks or money. Sorry, money orders, not cashier, money orders yep. and take the money orders to the courthouse. So, And you're going to walk out your apartment in Brooklyn. You're going to walk down the street. Do you get stopped? Do people pay attention? Do people know who you are? Uh, now we're going to kind of move the conversation to getting out of prison. A little bit. I think in Manhattan for sure. Um, I hate going to the courthouse because there's always like cameras outside for other cases going on. So I try to like slip in and slip out. And, like not be like, oh, Billy's in court today. And like the rumor is like, why? Who, who the fuck knows? People are going to think. But yeah, I literally have to go back to the courthouse to drop these checks off every, you know, every few weeks. So, okay, well, I'm jumping a second. So you get you were supposed to be there six years. When did you learn that it was only going to be four years? So everybody in the federal system gets 15% of the time off, like automatically for good behavior. And then you can lose that. So that's around a year off of six years. Uh, ended up losing some of that for getting in trouble. So basically six becomes five for everybody. And then... Trump passed something called the First Step Act um, shortly after I got arrested for the first time. And we all thought it was bullshit. But then literally like a year ago, January of last year, I was woken up at like 6 a.m. by, you know, one of the administrators. It's like, fuck you, McFarland, you got a year off. You know, we got to get you out of here soon. And the First Step Act like suddenly kicked in like out of nowhere. And everybody who like, deserved a time off got their year off. So it's pretty crazy to see it actually come into effect. What happened the day you got out of prison? Who picked you up? What what was that so, day like? Um, I had five months of halfway house and pretty much everybody gets like 10%-ish of their sentence in like a halfway house, like the last 10%. So I was in a jail just outside of Detroit at this point. Um, wasn't allowed to fly, but had to go to a halfway house in Brooklyn. So family basically flew there, rented a car and uh, drove me to the halfway house in Brooklyn. But I had like Costco shrimp in the car was my request because like, that's the first thing I did. <laughs> I just you ate Costco spray. shrimp as your first meal out of prison? Well, they, they landed in this like shithole town like outside Detroit. And, like we had nowhere to go buy you food. So I had to go to some like Costco to get you shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're paying restitution. What, like, what has life been like? How long have you been out? Six months? So my sentence ended August 30th. So what now? Five, just over five months, right? Yeah. Five, five months, months since you've been out of the halfway house. Yeah. Yeah. What's life uh, been like? How is it? How is life as you right now? So it's starting to pick up. Um, I think that like I expected the day my sentence ended that people would just like flock back to me. And in reality, it didn't happen as quickly or at the same level I thought. Like I certainly had, you know, a handful of close friends who were there that day and like, you know, happy to start working with me. But I think I expected like the who's who, the business world to be like, hey, like you're back, you learn, like, you know, let's give you a second chance. And it's taken some time and it will take more time. But yeah, just things are starting to pick back up. But it certainly took, it's been a slog for the past like five months, just kind of getting back to reality and getting back to back to work. Have you had to face, obviously, I'm assuming you're building back relationships with friends, obviously yeah. your family's there. Have you had to face any of your enemies? Uh, not necessarily just anybody that watched, but somebody that you dealt with, with Fire Festival before. Have you had to meet with any of these people or talk with any of them? Or is that, you, you've done your time, you're paying your restitution, you don't have to deal with them anymore? I don't really know. And I think like the answer that 
a lot of people ask that and the answer that I'm giving is that I think I'm super sheltered and that if like an investor before is really mad at me, and I'm sure a lot of them are, they're probably not going to waste their time to call me at this point at six years later and be like, Hey, we hate you. Like they have their own problems. They have their own life. They have their own like goals. Right. So they're all super busy. So I'm really only hearing from people who are interested in either having like that emotional conversation or, you know, spending time with me or being with me. So I'm a little sheltered by, I think like who I've been in touch with to this point, I'm sure at some point that'll change, but it's been a little, little interesting so far. Have any of your investors called and said, I'm in for whatever you do next? For sure. And wow. not a lot to raise money at this point. Like, even if I am, it's not going to do it. But you're not allowed started, to? No, I think like, I don't think I can sell securities. I've gotten conflicting advice there. So I'm just not going to take any risk and like, just there's no need to to push the boundaries. Yeah. But um, a couple of the investors who like really didn't expect to hear from have reached out like literally in the past handful of weeks. And those meetings have been interesting. I think like beyond financial stuff, there's like this emotional void, I think that they're seeking and I'm certainly seeking as well, just to, like understand like what happened and like where we stand. So yeah, I, I just like, I like to talk to people just like on that emotional level and like certainly would never want to do business with them, but it's more of like, how can we just like understand what happened and just like move on as humans from, from what happened. All right. We've kind of talked about the story. I kind of want to talk about something that's interesting. I love marketing and, and, and despite whatever's happened, you are an incredible marketer. So maybe let's just start there. What do you know about marketing that the whole world doesn't know? Yes. I think like I have a really specific marketing skill set, And part of this whole process is like understanding that and then not taking on like what I don't know how to do really well. Yeah. And I'm great at coming up with, I'm like going from zero to one. I think I'm the best. Like I can come up with some sort of like creative strategy. I can find really interesting people who have reach, but are, you know, inherently lazy and actually get them to come together and do the work to like launch. So I'm great at getting people on base and kind of creating that first marketing wave. I don't want to like manage ad spend or do like traditional ads, like all that shit, like there are better experts at. I'm just really good at creating some crazy launch, like buzz and wave. So just trying to help brands who are launching new products, just do it and just go viral in the process. Okay. Let's go through like an idea. Like if you were to take on, we we could talk about fire, we could talk about pirate, or we could talk about any idea, but what is an example of something that like you can do better than everybody else? Like take that example and let's talk about something tangible. Yeah. I think like it's a really simple world in that attention is extremely valuable to consumer brands right now. And I'm good at creating that moment. And I think it always comes down to this ability to connect different people and experiences in ways that don't necessarily seem like they should fit together. And by doing that, it kind of creates like this attention vortex. Like, why is this person with this person doing X? And those moments sell. And I have like a weird ability to come up with and execute those moments. Okay. So the other day on Twitter, we talked about this, um, or we were emailing about it. You wrote a thread that pissed off a million people, but it actually got you a lot of clients. Talk about the thread. And you basically said, if you want me to help your uh, business go viral, holler. And you actually had a lot of people reach out. So let's talk about the thread first. And then I want to know, like, what are you going to do for all these people that reached out? Okay. So post my first ever Twitter thread literally five days ago uh, on Sunday, uh, 
my opening statement was I created or I launched like one of the most viral marketing campaigns ever. And then I told one backstory from when I was 19, kind of getting my start in New York. And I had like sub 1,000 followers. I had like, you know, nothing on Twitter. And the story went viral, has like almost a million and a half views on this thread at this point from nothing. And basically pissed off probably a million, there's <laughs> like a million and a half people. Um, I just think there's this really interesting mindset happening in the world that's probably like the culmination of the economic environment, the woke culture that kind of came and took over for the past handful of years, which is that the more the masses are enraged, the more the people who disagree with them are willing to invest or be part of that counterculture. Mm. So for the million people that get super mad, there's 400 who are saying, you know, our marketing budget was 20K, but, you know, now we'll spend 80K to be part of like the culture that goes against like what we don't believe in. So I think we're in this interesting time and this is fueled by the world culture. It's fueled by social media. It's fueled by economic environment where you truly have to enrage people in order to build a successful brand. So I think this is counter to like all these traditional brand and marketing playbooks of like the past 50 years or if not like 100 years, but you really need to enrage in order to build a strong, loyal customer base. Okay, so if you if if pissing people off uh, is a strategy, and you had four hundred startups, I'm assuming like not all the like some of these startups they might be selling, you know, I don't know products to kids or something. Like yeah. What strategy do you take to that versus like can you do an enrage uh, marketing campaign on like a product that's selling to kids versus another festival or something? Like how do you think about it with each client? If you were to work with all four hundred. Like what's your, what's the core of what you're giving all these people? Because I don't think you can piss off everybody, can you? No. So I think it's more about like, how do you create a, a, a stunt that just like confuses people, right? And you want to have that conversation. If, you know, if you're releasing a product and it's like totally clear and like totally bland, like no one really gives a shit. So yeah. it's, I've had everything from like consumer product companies to SaaS business companies to like major online retailers who you know, are trying to launch a spring or summer collection, you know, all reach out and it all comes down to how can we have shocking people execute a stunt with this brand to get app downloads, to get, you know, product sales, to get massive media attention. They all kind of have their own goals. And that's where I'm trying to help. And I, I like, you know, don't have a big team right now. It's like 10 of us. Sorry. It's all right. This is what makes a podcast so great. This is real life happening right here. Okay. So what's happening right here. Uh, Let's talk about it. Is that I'm trying to pay these restitution checks today, <laughs> but I'm literally have like Venmo, Cash App and Chime. And I need permission to open up any other bank accounts. So like I'm trying to get paid for my company, but like they could only send so much to Venmo, Cash App and Chime. And each one has like low limits so I can't really go and buy like big money orders from the post office. So uh, yeah. it's my business partner being like, dude, I'm trying to pay you. I don't know how to pay you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like your stupid bank. This sucks. is real life happening right here on the podcast, yeah. folks. <laughs> He's like, I've been on call with Chimes customer service. They cannot take wire transfers. How can I pay you? <laughs> Crazy. Okay. Here, we'll just do, we'll, I won't put you on the spot. There's an American flag behind me and I come to you and I say, I got a, I got a company. We sell American flags. 
There's a Bahamas flag behind me. There's a Bahamas flag behind you. Okay, we're a flag company. I need to sell a million uh, American flags. I'll give you a little time to think about it, but how are we going to get a viral campaign out to where everybody wants to buy an American flag? Because candidly, the, America needs a lot more American flags right now. So maybe this is a good idea. What are we going to do to get this American flag into the pockets of customers? Okay. How, wow. That's, that's a hard one. Um, how we sell the American flag. Okay. So it's like, I would, I would harp on the concept of America representing freedom. Okay. And I would find like 10 people who I think YouTube would be great for this, who are crazy on YouTube, who do more like adventure style content and like doing exhilarating things that make them seem free, whether it's skydiving or like going dude buggying or like going big wave surfing and then have the, the American flag be part of that stunt, but then have them all come together at the end somehow and basically show like how this flag represents freedom and allows you to like live life to the fullest. I love that's it. it. That's, that's awesome. Story. That's on the spot. That's Johnny on the spot. That is awesome. Let's talk a little bit about pirate and then we'll bring it home. So you had time to think and you had in you had four years to think of all the things in the world that you could possibly do. And you came up with this uh, company pirate. And I'll be honest, I understand a little bit of it because I've listened, but I want to hear it again. What what are you doing and why is this the idea that of all of the things you could do that that you're going to do? So the escapism and or, or the desire to have escapism and to dream in jail convinced me of one thing. And I had like no access to like, I didn't even know Web3 was a thing in jail. Like I missed all of that. I missed this whole like AI revolution. I believe that mixed reality is the future of the world. And people want to get the hell away from their lives and they want to live a life that is currently impossible to them. And whether it's virtual reality, mixed reality, XR, whatever you want to call it, like that is the future of human entertainment. So I want to combine that tech aspect with what I do really well and what I did really well, which was take interesting people, bring them on these like life-defying experiences, but instead of trying to invite 3,000 through a festival, is build that mixed reality to invite everybody to these actual physical experiences, no matter where they are in the world. So that's what Pirate's all about. So you can basically dictate what the people that are, are physically there are doing while they're on the island whether you have goggles on in a simple form and you feel like you're walking on an island and you can see, you know, XYZ star literally walking past you who's there and share a drink with them or push them off the dock, like where all the sharks are swimming to actually like owning and building a beach bar with 10,000 people online where each put in a couple of dollars. So it's all about like taking people to places that they can't get to without me and then allowing them to actually own and affect those places. Have you partnered with somebody? Like how does this actually get off the ground? So building the tech right now, uh, the next step is for us to essentially partner with some sort of super remote boutique hotel where we can just like take over the marketing and host our pirate talent there, rig it all with our 360 cameras, and then start doing like crazy weekend events where people can put their goggles on and come mess around in the pirate island. Is there different levels that you pay for? Like as a customer, do I just pay to, to show up at the place? Do I have different levels I can pay to have different experiences? How does that work? The way I basically call it is like almost like a virtual hotel stay where, you know, you can pay $8 a night to come to the hotel virtually. And there's many things you can do for free once you're there, but then it's all things you can pay for. And one of the big things I'm working on is how people can actually own the environment. So like one example is 
if you want to open up a beachside bar and sell drinks to your favorite stars, like you can chip in $1 with 50,000 other people and you own like one fifty thousandths of this beachside bar. You can literally sell drinks to people around the island, but you can like tune into your bar every day and like see what's happening from wherever you are in the world. So giving people access to, to really make their mark on the world in a way they currently don't have the ability to do. When should we expect to see this out into the world? I've gotten really good at not giving deadlines. So that's a great answer. All right, man, this was awesome. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I'm rooting for you. I believe everybody has a second chance and uh, I wish you all the best as you move forward. Chris, thank you. This is fun. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there, and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on, and now we sit here today in 2022, at the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees, now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a, a global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to, going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that, that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Reload Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that, that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. 
the benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Fort Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So... Uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more, uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Right. right. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24 hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew that we worked with daily that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're, ha- it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And, and that, that's a good point. And uh, I think the, the what, what's important to understand there is that this group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third-party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is, or might be sensitive, right, um, information. We actually have all that internal, and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's, a, it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it, even here locally in America, there's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. 
All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.